Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther, and Lily. Lily's got some information to share with us about human-animal collaborations. I'm going to provide our plan so far for the off-grid property and building we're acquiring through our charity Bluefish Canada, and I'll be reflecting on collaborations with wild animals that can go wrong if you start off on the wrong foot. Come on, Lewis. Let's get on the right foot and go find Lily. Did you know? Hey, Lily. Hi. You know, Lily, uh, I've always enjoyed owning dogs. You know that. You know, when I was, yeah, yeah, when I was younger, I had beagles and I had them mainly because they were hunting dogs. And as I saw them as hunting dogs, not as pets, you know, Mm. and um, it wasn't until I got my guide dog when I was 23, my first guide dog, that I started to realize that dogs are more than just, you know, tools to uh, help you do things. They, you know, yeah, the guide dog helped me get around, but over the 10 years I had that first dog, I realized they did a lot more. They really empathized. They really got to know you and they were there for you and they became kind of friends, right? It, it was amazing. But, but I understand you've got some information today about animals and the history of animals and humans collaborating together. Well, yeah, I mean, for one, the two, our two dogs are sitting at the door begging to come in. <laughs> but you're not, you said they're not allowed no, to No, no, that. not what we're recording. They're too noisy. They start fighting, biting toes, and they just distract <clears throat> you. So, and they're distracting you already, looking in the window. Yeah. So uh, humans have had mutually beneficial collaborations with, you know, like six, at least six different species, including uh, wolves, orcas, and apparently a species of dolphin that is now extinct. Wow. Yeah, no, stories passed down within indigenous communities of present-day North America describe collaborative relationships between their ancestors and wolves. It is believed that past Blackfoot and Dakota Sioux hunters emulate wolf packs in the way they would study roaming bison before coordinating an ambush, targeting calves and other vulnerable members of the herd in the process. Both groups may have even worked together to take down prey with the wolves' acute senses and speed complementing the human hunter's ability to use tools like spears and, you know, that other stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I, I can attest to that. You know, not just hunting dogs and their, and their love of chasing animals, but even having my guide dogs on my boat over the years <laughs> they learn to uh, love fishing as much as i do right they know when the drag is clicking on the reel when i got a bite they watch the rod tip bend over they they know that there's a bite i even had one dog that actually would watch for following fish fish following my lures like the muskie do quite often and he, he would get all excited and bump up against the gunnel of the boat and uh, i knew then i had a fish following my lure they they were amazing they were so involved with the fishing yeah. one dog even you know would try to Scoop the fish out hanging over the side of the boat and he would fall out every time. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Oh my goodness, there there could be a handful on a boat. But uh, hey, if you you guys are interested in learning more, check out my Outdoor Canada magazine article. It's on their website, Outdoor Canada magazine. And it's six tips for bringing your uh, dog on your boat with you fishing. Number one, don't let the little one jump out. (laughs) Yeah, his veggie jumped out. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, okay, but can you think you can do that with the dogs, but can you imagine having a killer whale helping you fish? Oh, will I? Yeah, no. Scottish immigrants and members of the Aboriginal Yuan Nation also used to hunt with orcas in Australia's Twofold Bay for two centuries up until the early 1900s. Siberian Yupik and Chukchi people co-hunted with orcas 
in the Chukotka region of Russia. Cooperative orcas would signal whalers with splashing once they shared prey had been successfully corralled and trapped. The crew would then harpoon the whale and reward their wild partners with a treat, the tongue of the whale, before harvesting the rest of the remains for uh, whale oil. You wonder how would they know that the killer whales were interested in the tongue? It's like those killer whales that hunt great white sharks and just eat the uh, liver. Those killer whales are just like, they're actually cutting open sharks with surgical precision. Yeah, they're right from underneath. They, They come in from underneath bite them right in the belly, right where the liver is, and pull the liver out and let the rest of the carcass uh, yeah. uh, adrift. Killer whales might be like, the. I think they might be the smartest hunters. They're incredible. If, you know, if, if they if those aren't your second choice after dogs, <laughs> <laughs> you can use bottlenose dolphins. Oh. Yeah, cooperation between Bunjalung fishers and species of bottlenose dolphin in eastern Australia existed up until the early 20th century. The dolphins, after expertly hurting a bulk of fish, would then cue fishers to cast their nets around the gathered mass. In a return, the dolphins got an easy meal from fish that managed to escape from the nets. We know dolphins getting into fish nets is a real problem, not for recreational anglers, but commercial fishers, you know, especially for tuna. They're often struggling to keep dolphins out of their nets and finding new technologies to to push dolphins away. That's why... um, you know, it's hard to find canned tuna that's sustainably harvested. It's because of these dolphins. You got to look for the cans with the little symbol on it that have the specific dolphin symbol. Yeah. Which says that they don't have it. Yeah. Um, okay, this is different. Um, a small number of villagers in Adamawa in Cameroon still practice traditional honey hunting within the Adamawa region. So both honey guide birds and participating honey hunters have been known to initiate foraging activities with each other. Honey hunters call the birds in a myriad of ways through whistling, rapping of nearby trees, or uh, singing a tune special to the region. Other times, the bird initiates by flying up to honey hunters out in the Adamawa Plateau and beckoning with their like with their chatter, you know. Oh, cool. As soon as the humans will see that, they follow the birds from one tree to another. The honey guide birds will fly in one direction the pr- to the prize of the beehive, guiding its human partner to, hi- to hives hidden high up in the tree hollows and beneath the savanna soil. So once at the hive, the human subdues the bees using fire. By doing so, the honey guide bird is then able to access the leftover honeycomb, which is a source of nutrients for one of the few species capable of digesting beeswax. In the end, honey hunters see increased foraging success through higher honey yields, higher honey yields, higher honey yields, and shorter <laughs> search times while the birds gain access to honeycomb. I guess we don't have those uh, those birds here in Canada, which would mean, you know, falling back to our usual honey hunting collaborator, the black bear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that always goes well. <laughs> so um, one more story about humans fishing with dolphins. Okay. In the small beach town of Laguna in southern Brazil, local fishing crews and a similarly local population of Bottlenose dolphins have worked together to capture mullet for over a century. Oh. Not the hairstyle. Not all dolphins in the area participate, according to researchers who documented the collaboration. Researchers estimate that about a third of the local bottlenose dolphin population are currently cooperative. 
The fishers call the good dolphins the one that interact with them. They call the other ones bad dolphins, the ones that aren't cooperative, that never approach the coast or fish with them. So researchers found that both the fishers and dolphins have greater foraging success when they work together. Collaborative dolphins also were less likely to get accidentally tangled in fishing nets than huh. other dolphins in the area. Uh, the collaborating foraging between fishers and dolphins in Laguna shapes both communities. The mm -hmm. cooperative dolphins tend to socialize with one another rather than with the non-cooperative dolphins. The fishers also have a close-knit community. So the long-standing dynamic, it comes with benefits that researchers describe as material and non-material. So yeah, there are fish and income to be had from catching them, but there are also something else like culture and belonging. That's, that's amazing, you know, Lily, and it really says a lot about, you know, connecting with nature. It's not just appreciating nature, but when you spend time in nature and uh, generations and you develop this traditional knowledge and know-how, you start these relationships with other animals. It's just... You know, even knowing what's going on around you just by the way the other animals react. Like, I know when I used to bear hunt, I always knew a bear was coming when the squirrels would stop, you know, fighting and, and making noise and the birds would go silent. When the forest got absolutely silent, about a minute later, a black bear would emerge. Mm. But, you know, you can't have these this know-how, this knowledge and these relationships if you don't spend time in the forest. More reason to get outdoors. Hey, thanks, Lily. Outdoor Adventures. Hello, my name's Lawrence Gunther. I'm the founder and president of Bluefish Canada. We're a charity registered in Canada since 2012. Our mandate is water quality, fish health, and the future of recreational fishing. We really want to connect young people to nature through the outdoors, and we want to make sure the mentors training them to do this are we using the latest science-based best practices in terms of how to do it sustainably, as well as traditional knowledge and local knowledge? Today, I'm going to talk to you about a project we're just starting up called the Bluefish Canada Youth Resource Exploration Centre and a Research Station. It's a seven-acre tract of land covering 1,350 feet of shoreline on a pristine lake about five kilometers across. Why did we acquire this property? Well, there's also a building there, 1,750 square foot building that used to have, oh, it still does have actually 24 bunk beds in. It used to service as an off-grid youth outdoor exploration center. What we want to do is turn the building into a center for researchers that will accommodate six to eight biologists and other researchers interested in nature's resilience, fish habitat, fishery health and research, and then have tents, canvas tents along the shore under the mature white pines to provide accommodations to up to 25 youth of all backgrounds and abilities or five families, and then a fully accessible shoreline. So today I'm going to talk to you about how do we make sure that these, the whole property, all 1,350 feet of shoreline, the waterfront itself, the tents and the cabin are fully accessible to people of all backgrounds and all abilities. Let's talk about the building itself first. It was built in 1996. It's not accessible. There are two large bedrooms in there, with each having 12 bunks, a large living area, a kitchen, dining, living room, and then a large solarium and a small bathroom. So all that has to come out 
And uh, before we do that, we'll be getting some designers in to make sure not only is it going to be physically accessible, providing four bedrooms for six to eight researchers, a bathroom, a kitchen, uh, eating area, and a meeting area, but that it's also accessible to people with ergonomic issues. So good furniture that supports the back and the knees and the legs and good lighting, non-glaring lighting, good sound, no acoustics issues, no echo and, uh, and good quality lighting throughout and basically fully accessible to meet the needs of all people of all abilities. Now, there's a lot of information on how to do that. We'll be using that information. I've done a bit of this work in the past myself over the years, and uh, but I'm not an expert in all aspects of it. So we'll be bringing in the experts on this design aspect, developing a 3D design, everything measured, ready to go. So when the contractors show up, they know exactly what to do. That's the easy part. How do you make five tents that can sleep six to four to six people each canvas tents fully accessible. Well, we're working with a custom tent builder out in Western Canada. That's going to be working with us on that. So the doors will be high enough for people to walk through without banging their heads. The uh, windows will be at the right height. So people of all heights will be able to enjoy the view. The walls will be of uh, proper height. So people aren't brushing their head against the roof of the canvas tent. You know, we all know that when you're in a canvas tent and it's been raining out, as soon as you touch the walls, you're going to start getting wet. That's where the water's going to come in. We're going to put in cots that are proper height so people can transfer easily from wheelchairs to the uh, to their cot and back again. That the beds are supportive, that they're wide and, and long enough to support their weight and uh, their size and whatever equipment they need, that there's electricity and lighting in the tents. So we're bringing in the solar energy. We're, we're running wires into these tents to provide uh, charge stations for whatever equipment you need to charge up and to provide lighting so that there's safety in the, at nighttime. We're not going to be putting wood stoves in them because wood stoves are great. If you know where they are, you can avoid them. But if you don't see where they are, even if you feel their heat, it's so easy to touch them by mistake if you can't see them. So we'll be using alternate sources of heat, but we're not operating in the wintertime. This will be uh, spring and fall and summer. So we don't anticipate needing the stoves that much. So I think on the canvas tent thing, we'll be okay. We just have to get the right manufacturer who understands our needs and make sure that the people who are going to use this are happy. So we'll be running some focus groups and looking for other people that have done the same thing at their facilities to learn from their experiences. 2023 is the year of planning. All our implementation will begin in early 2024. So we've talked about the cabin. We've talked about the wall tents. How do you get between the two? Now, if you want to put down a lot of pavement or roads, that's one thing. But this property is all populated by very mature, large white pine trees. We don't want to be crushing their roots. We don't want to be cutting them down. So we'll be fitting the tents in between the trees and we'll be running the paths in between the trunks. We're going to be using uh, crushed gravel and moving that around with small uh, wheelbarrows and very small vehicles. So nothing that can injure the roots of the trees. Once you crush the roots of the trees with heavy equipment, five years later, those trees will start to show uh, signs of... Um, mortality as the ants and other bugs get into the crushed roots and make their way into the tree and start to kill it. So we don't want that to happen to these trees, but we will be using crushed gravel. We'll be spreading it out so that 
packed down uh, using water and compactors. And it makes a good surface for wheelchairs and for blind people and their guide dogs and their white canes. As a blind person myself, it's always nice to have a tactile indicator to follow a path of some sort. So if you know you're off the path, you need to get back on the path before you get really lost. And for people in wheelchairs, you don't want to be getting bogged down or stuck behind stumps or rocks and things like that. It's always nice to have a smooth path that you can move through easily without being jarred or bounced around. And uh, it just makes the whole experience that much nicer. How do we keep free people from getting lost? Well, we have the shore on one side. So there'll be a natural barrier there of the waterfront and it's all level access. So there's no cliffs or large rocks to fall down from. We made sure about that. And if there is any dangerous areas, we'll be piling in front of a, some logs and uh, natural barriers to keep people from wandering into those more dangerous areas. On the other side of the property, there's an old logging road. So if you make it to the logging road, you just have to find your way back. You don't go walking across the logging road and into the forest. At one end of the property, it's a peninsula, and at the other end of the property is the building. So there's little chance of wandering off. Even still, we'll be making a, a, a corral, a, a run, fenced in run for service dogs and guide dogs to make sure they don't skitter off chasing rabbits and deers into the forest, never to be seen again, and keeping them safe from coyotes and wolves and things like that as well. So we're thinking as much as we can, but it is nature. And when you're in nature, things can happen. Uh, we just want to mitigate the risk as much as possible where, where we know we can. So we've talked about the paths. We've talked about the canvas tents. We've talked about, you know, keeping people safe from getting lost. Uh, we've talked about the building. We haven't talked about outhouses. We're taking uh, that and a few different approaches. We're going to be using uh, compostable toilets where as much as possible to mitigate our impact on nature. That includes the toilet we're putting into the cabin. It'll be a composting toilet as well. And at the bathhouse as well, we'll have um, a, a non-gender specific bathhouse with two rooms. Each room will have a sink, an accessible toilet with grab rails and an accessible uh, roll-in shower. And then we're also putting some boom boxes behind each tent. So at night, if you need to go, you don't need to go behind a tree or just outside the tent, you can come out of the door of your tent, take the rope that will be attached there on a post and just follow that rope with your hand to the boom box. Now the boom box is just that. It's a rectangular box with a toilet seat on the top of it in the middle. These will be at the right height to allow transfer from a wheelchair. The surface of these boxes will be smooth, clean, and uh, and uh, sliver free. No one wants to get a, a wood sliver from an old wooden box. And uh, we'll be putting a large tent over each boom box as well to offer privacy, protection from the bugs, and uh, big enough to bring in someone with a wheelchair who's using a wheelchair, and if they also want someone to help them as well. So two people, a wheelchair inside the tent with the boom box, located, like I said, each one located close enough to the tent, not to, for the noise to carry, but close enough to get back and forth from the tent on a rainy day without getting too wet. So I think we've got the bathroom thing covered pretty good. Let's talk about the waterfront now. The waterfront is where a lot of the action is going to happen. 
you know, we're going to have scientists there going out to do research on uh, nature resilience, strengthening due to climate change uh, impacts. We're talking about fish habitat, shoreline restoration, uh, fish health, and, uh, and fish um, numbers as well. So there's lots of researchers coming and going, which is why we want to bring the youth. We want to bring the youth so that they can work with these researchers and understand the science and uh, what they're learning and, and, and help the researchers do their work as well and be part of that process. So the shoreline is, is has a, a nice sandy beach, a level access to that sandy beach. It's all natural, so we don't have to do much there. We will be installing ropes with floats around the swimming area so that if you're inadvertently if it's too quiet if there's no noise at all which can totally happen in the outdoors in the evening when the wind drops off you can have not a sound even the birds just go to sleep you don't want to just inadvertently swim away from land if you you get disoriented so we'll be putting in high contrast floats and ropes you'd have to work pretty hard to make it past the ropes but just in case uh, at the corners of the ropes we'll be having sound emitters and back on land, we'll be having sound emitters as well. So you always know, even if there's no birds or no wind in the trees or all those natural sounds that keep you oriented, there will be other forms of sound coming from, you know, nature, but more man-made sounds that imitate nature. We don't want to have horns and bells and uh, sirens and things like that. No, we will have something. If someone does get lost, we will have a loud sound emitter that will give um, timed calls, times uh, sirens, so that people can use that to find their way back and in case of emergencies. And uh, that's that makes sense. So other waterfront craft we will be introducing is single and double wide kayaks, sit on top kayaks. So not the kind of kayaks that have a little hole that you have to swivel your legs into, but ones you sit on top of. So you don't need to, um, if you fall out, you just fall out, you float away from the kayak and get yourself back into it, but you won't be trapped underneath the kayak. Same with the canoes, we'll be using wider bodied canoes. They aren't fast, but they're more stable. We'll be having a, a, a sailboat there with a drop keel, 16-foot sailboat that provides uh, access for up to four people. And it gives you a chance to really feel what it's like to navigate by the feel of the waves on the boat, by the sound of the shore and the waves rolling up on the shore and the birds in the trees, by the um, feel of the wind on your face. And we'll have some electronics on there as well, some devices, but for the most part, You'll be learning to sail like people have sailed for thousands of years. This location is a dark sky location. So at night, there's no ambient light coming from uh, cities or industry nearby to block out your view of the stars. It's also uh, a, a low noise situation. So there's no uh, artificial sounds other than the ones you make yourself uh, that's going to prevent you from really enjoying the quiet of being in nature. So we really want to emphasize that it's it's a place for mental recovery, mental well health, uh, a spiritual reconnection with nature through song, through poetry, through storytelling, through theater. You can't just connect with nature just with your mind or just with your eyes. You need to connect with it through your smell, your taste, the sound of nature, and by eating nature. If we eat nature, we're believing that it's good for us, it's healthy for us. 
And we, if we're going to believe in that, we have to make sure we give back to nature to make sure it really is healthy and sustainable when we take from nature. It's a one health relationship. Our health depends on nature and nature's health depends on us. That's one health. And that's what we want to pass on and teach to people. And that's what our scientists are going to help us to understand. How do we achieve one health? What is the science we need to bring to the table? We also have First Nations individuals passing on their traditional knowledge because they've been doing this for thousands of years, as well as local people that have spent generations in this part of the world and really understand the, the, the changes that have been unfolding in this part of the world. So there you go. That's all about Bluefish Canada and our off-grid uh, Exploration Center for Youth and Research Station. If you want to learn more, you can contact me, Lawrence Gunther, at director at bluefishcanada.ca. That's director at bluefishcanada.ca. Thank you very much. Outdoor tips and tech. Dogs are highly empathetic, forgiving, and community-oriented. So they're creatures that possess most emotions that we possess. What they don't possess is the ability to plan. If you want to develop a good relationship with a dog, help them achieve their goals in life. Things like going for a walk, getting fed, having their belly rubbed, playing games, and cuddling up help them achieve the things that are important to them. And in turn, they'll help you do the same. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at ami-audio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, the manager of AMI-audio, Zandi Frank. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.